Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 40 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 3rd of November. And Leon, this week we're talking about bikes with Wade Wallace, who runs the world's premier blog and online cycling information service called Cycling Tips. It's based in Melbourne, but it's got people all over the planet keeping the eyes on this booming industry. That's right. He's going to be talking to us all about the bicycle industry and how it's growing and the importance of it. Uh, and then we have Sinclair Davidson talking about the move by Australia's states to handle more of their financial affairs. That's right. He uh, has a go at COAG and says it's not working that well. He thinks maybe the states would do better than the federal. That's right. Now, let's listen to Wade. All over the world, bikes are big business. Everyone knows about the Tour de France, the greatest of cycle races, backed by huge sums of money and French national pride, yet it is but one of thousands of competitive and social cycling events that happen all over the world every week. Here in Victoria, the biggest event is a fundraising ride for everyone called Around the Bay in a Day, and last year it attracted 20,000 riders to its 250-kilometre course. And then there's the Giro della Donna, a cycling carnival that this year will bring 2,500 mountain and road bike riders and thousands of spectators to Warburton, a small hillside town that is surrounded by great cycling country, testing hills, bush tracks and beautiful forests. The Giro starts on November 26th of this year. It's a two-day event. I spoke about it and cycling in general to Wade Wallace, founder of Cycling Tips, based in Melbourne, the world's leading online blog, podcast, and all-round international information service on cycling. Wade, bikes are big business these days and competition in bikes, you know, there's the Tour de France and a lot of other things. Now, you're involved with a thing happening in Warburton. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Giro della Donna, we call it, and it's a play on words of Giro being the tour, uh, Donna being Donna Buang, a massive mountain outside of uh, uh, looming over Warburton. And three years ago, my, me and my team, we thought, like, let's do something big, bigger than we've ever done. We said, let's do a Grand Fondo in the most beautiful place we know of. And this happens to be in Warburton. Warburton was a perfect staging place. There's a 110-kilometer loop that it's really challenging. It goes through the most amazing forests and hills and um, and finishes up Donna Buang. And we thought, let's pull this off. We did it. The first one had about a thousand people. We did it again the next year. It grew, doing it again this year. And the Yara, Yara Ranges Council has been nothing but supportive um, and they've made it all happen for us. How many people do you reckon you're going to get this year? We're aiming for 2,500 this year. And uh, w- the accommodation is probably one of the most challenging things. There are surrounding towns in that, but it's an early start. So we've done glamping this year. We've hosted um, you know, a lot of the events and uh, event village in a campsite, and we've uh, organized glamping so that, uh, number one, kind of we want that to be the vibe of the event, but also, too, for, you know, I think the place is already booked out, so for overflow guests being in quite nice tent accommodation. And the people coming there from all over the world? 
No, mostly, well, we definitely do have international people, um, but mostly uh, uh, Victoria and getting New South Wales, Queensland as well, Adelaide. Um, and that's just more of our focus as time goes on to get those interstate guests as well. It's big business, bikes particularly in Europe, and it's growing in Australia. Tell us how you see the industry. The industry is, it's, there's, there's, there's a big market there, um, and the industry is very competitive. Uh, I don't think you talk to anybody in the industry right now who says they're smashing it. Um, it's all, it's tough, and I don't think anyone would really have it any other way. Like, everyone loves being in the industry. As I said earlier, it's a big dysfunctional family, and we wouldn't have any other, uh, any other way. But um, the, the growth in the market is, you know, it's not really coming at this high end or potentially low end with more advocacy being done for better road conditions. And, and, and that. But um, just this middle class um, or upper middle class white collar professional, uh, you know, 30s, 40s, reclaiming their fitness after kids um, and sort of that middle age athlete again. And it's a perfect sport socially um, for, for business networking. A lot of these people find for um, being healthy and it's time efficient as well. It's a good aerobic exercise. What, what's the estimate of the world market? Do you know any numbers that would indicate any billion dollars? is invested in in cycling? Oh, I should know the answer to this, but I don't. And it's really hard to categorize as well. And the reason I don't know this is because there's never any gold sample of a study done that I've ever seen. And it's really hard to um, delineate between the overlap of mountain bike and road bike and commuter. And there's just so many different genres of it. And then they really blend into each other. So I don't know if there's an aggregate that I've ever seen. But at least it's big. It's it's huge. Yeah, I think, um, again, too, like it's it's not big like when you talk about like gaming and and or even sports like skateboarding you just look at people's instagram accounts or social media accounts and you see the 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 disparity between the size of cycling to a lot of other sports that are much more mainstream so it may be kind of a niche area but it's still it is a global market isn't it yeah absolutely i think um one thing that we're very fortunate of is that you know we came in the time of the internet when borders don't really exist right so we've been able to build a business with that mindset. And so we see it as this global market. Um, there's a lot of the industry who are really, um, you know, tens of years into the path of, you know, localization and distributorships and in, you know, the networks of bike shops and stuff that have to be local, which is, I think they're going through a tough time of change at the moment. Um, fortunately, we're not pregnant with that and we can, you know, we're, we're not so. So where, where does your company fit into this? You're promoting or how does that work? So the business I run is called Cycling Tips and it, it was started as a blog from my kitchen table with two minutes of thought and it's grown into one of the biggest international cycling websites in the world which is kind of by accident but uh, I love it. Um, so we, we're a media website. We, we do a podcast as well. We do coverage of the sport. We do coverage of issues. We like to be the start of the conversation um, with our ear to the ground with whatever's happening not the end of the conversation. So we're lucky to have this voice. We reach a lot of people so when we want to do something and create ancillary businesses like um, a Grand Fondo in Warburton or um, maybe e-commerce or membership, we can we can also do that as well. And because we do have this trusted, credible voice, we have journalists all over the world telling these stories and um, we, we draw in a good audience. So we're, we're very fortunate. How's cycling changing? The e-bikes, of course, are surging, I think. Mm, I have one. It's awesome. People like me take the strain off the, off the joints a bit. Yeah. Expensive to buy. Yeah. I think everyone in cycling is extremely excited about e-bikes. They, you, you go to Eurobike, the main sort of trade convention, and it is 
all about e-bikes. So in Europe, you go to Europe and every second bike you see is an e-bike. You're right, they are these $5,000 investments. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, whether it's like a leasing model, because it's not really the, you know, the enthusiast like myself is not the market they're trying to attract. They're trying to attract people who, um, you know, maybe uh, who, who want it for transportation and, and like you say, take the load off the joints, don't want to change and all that. So, but I think no one quite knows where it's going to go yet. But, but you would say that that uh, possibly the leasing model might be better than the purchasing model for, for that sort of market. It could be. Um, just it takes the maintenance concerns off people. It, that huge cost, like five thousand dollars, to me isn't a lot for a bike. Just because my my perception is different. But for anybody else, that's that's a huge barrier, especially if it's being used once a week, twice a week. So leasing might be a, a an option. That... But the, the leasing thing, as Leanne was talking about, you've got uh, we've had what we call the Boris bike um, started in London, and then we had them here, supported by the Melbourne City Council. Now you've got the O bike coming in. So so there's competition in the market. Yeah. And that gets more people cycling, doesn't it? I, I think so. I, I don't know. Like, it's it's tough to know where to position them. Like, you think they might be a competitor to a lot of the lower-end bikes. Like, every big bike brand has a huge amount of... Most of their sales are these two, three, four dollars $400 bikes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the volume is. And it'd be interesting to know if those are encroaching on that market of bike. We've actually looked into this, and no one will comment on this, so we don't know for sure. But yeah, the O-Bikes, the uh, Melbourne bike shares all, all over the world that, you know, I've used them as a tourist. And I don't know, to be honest, if they are more of a tourist type thing um, or if they are something that's replacing people's need to buy a bike. I was talking to um, an urban planner the other day who suggests that as cities grow and Melbourne is expected to double in size in the next decade or so, a couple of decades, uh, the city, the central city will be cordoned off. Uh, you'll be delivered by an autonomous vehicle to the perimeter and you'll then have the choice of walking, getting on an autonomous bus or riding a bike. And so that cycling in that event would appear to become an essential part of commuting. I hope so. (laughs) And the the other issue too is uh, what we're seeing in Melbourne, particularly at the moment, bikes for hire. Yeah. Bikes for hire is in like the bike share model, you mean, or the long term? Yeah, the bike share for the ride type thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. um, I, I think that's a pretty amazing option with what you're talking about. Gary, the, um, I think I think the helmets is one thing that's a huge barrier to people. Mm. Um, you know, when I'm in Paris and in, in hire a Valib City Share bike, and it's just like you're a kid again. You don't wear a helmet. I don't know. I can't see the danger, especially with those bikes. And you're, you know, and you know, especially when you're if you're there's no traffic in the city as well. But then again, I've also my worst accidents have been going 10 kilometers an hour on a bike. So I'm kind of here nor there. But I don't know. I grew up riding without a helmet and. I I've ridden in France and, and Holland and places like that. But a helmet is su- suggested in those countries nonetheless. And riders in the tour yeah. have to wear helmets. So maybe it, it, people get used to it. Yeah. Um, saves a lot of head injuries. I hit a wall once, cracked a helmet. I have mixed feelings. Like, like it's it's kind of that, Is the be- are the benefits more in, with people riding their bikes more and removing that barrier to entry? Or, you know, is that the odd head injury the, the big concern? And, you know, you don't want to see any of that happen. So, but uh, one of the imponderables yet to work it out. Wade, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. More success to cycling. Thanks. Honor to be on the show. Thank you. Okay, looks like there's pedals in our future, Leon. I think so. Okay, now, Sinclair Davidson and the GST battles.
Sinclair Davidson, the treasurers from around Australia talking about breaking away from Comeg and setting up their own treasurer's body. Uh, what's your view about that? I actually think this is a pretty good idea, really, because in, in our system of federalism in Australia, we, it's, we don't actually have effective different levels of government working against each other in terms of judiciary, parliament and executive. We actually have the states versus the Commonwealth. And what has happened is the Commonwealth, quite frankly, just bullies the states all the time into doing all sorts of things that they don't necessarily want to do. So I actually think having a system where the treasurers um, actually meet and discuss amongst themselves before confronting the federal government is a good idea. And I also think having where money is discussed specifically, as opposed to all sorts of other things, is a pretty good idea. It's probably not a bad thing at all. Of course, the, the devil's always in the detail. How will it work? What will they do? But um, yeah, just just meeting by themselves and having a united front is probably uh, something that we might see some better policy development. So they meet, develop a united front and yeah. then go and meet with the treasurer at COAG. Yes, I, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think a lot of people become a bit cynical about COAG. It's becoming a bit of a circus um, where people sort of turn up and it, they they stage manage the affairs and what have you and we have people shouting the odds and whatever beforehand. Um, I think COAG should actually be a, a far more effective system um, than it currently is. So I think in, in terms of policy experimentation, I think this could work well. Well, COAG always seems to be a platform where the federal government beats up the states. Yes, yes, and it beats up the states on a divide-and-conquer rule. And it beats up the states by putting lots of money on the table. And, of course, one of the ways which the states could stop being beaten up is if they weren't so financially dependent upon the Commonwealth. Now, um, I don't know if you remember, I think just before the last federal election, Prime Minister Turnbull actually mooted the idea of returning income tax powers back to the states. And, of course, the states said, no, 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 we don't want any of that. But that would actually be another way of actually preventing the Commonwealth from beating up the states. So um, at the moment, the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth Parliament can give money to the states under any terms and conditions that they like, which, unfortunately, the courts have interpreted that very broadly. And so they do. They more or less bribe them. They do uh, um, a divide and, and, and rule strategies and bully, I mean. Really, they do bully them horribly. And yet the states, to avoid that, could take back their tax, their, their income tax powers, which, of course, uh, we had uh, Prime Minister Fraser tried this idea and people said no. Malcolm Turnbull tried this idea and, and, and people said no. So that would be an, another way of doing things. It would also resolve a lot of issues around uh, the GST carve-up. I mean, certainly the Western Australians are very unhappy at the moment. They're getting 38 uh, cents in the dollar for their GST thing. Now, my view on that, of course, is this is what they signed up for. Um, we all knew it was going to happen in 1998 when, when, when the system was designed. It's working precisely as it, as, as it was meant to work. But I think at the same time, uh, the Commonwealth government have quite rightly said, well, if some states are not developing their resources, we're going to penalise them on a GST basis. So what happens is Western Australia have been very aggressive in developing their mining resources, so therefore they don't need a top-up from the federal government. Um, other states, of course, are not very aggressive at all in, in developing their resources. They should actually be penalised. And the federal government has said that they, they will sort of start looking at that. Um, and that will also be an area, certainly, where the, the Western Australians are going to be very unhappy. So even within the, the, the Treasurer's COAG itself, if you want to call it that, um, there are going to be some very interesting arguments between the Western Australians, for example, and say the Tasmanians, because Tasmania is a huge beneficiary of, of these financial carve-ups, um, whereas Western Australia, of course, is a big loser. So 
even at that level, there's going to be all sorts of argumentation, what have you. But I think anything that actually puts a constraint on government and forces them to be more careful and better policy development, you would think is going to be a good thing. The the Productivity Commission recommendation to change the nature of the carve-up reads to me like a zero-sum game. There will be, you're basically taking away allocations to other states. Yes, there, there is a pot of money. So the Commonwealth collects the GST and then uh, takes off its administration costs, which are a trivial amount of money, so it's not there that much. And then it divides it up by a very strict formula. If you change that formula, you're still just dividing up the same pot of money. Now, I think if we are going to change the formula, and there's good or bad arguments either way, um, there is going to have to be a transition period, um, and there's also going to have to be more money put on the table. Uh, to finance that transition period. Otherwise, you will certainly have it is a zero-sum game, which is, of course, why everybody's fighting so hard over the whole formula itself. So that means the federal government would have to put more money on the table, more more taxpayers' money on yes, the table yes, yes. to get a smoother carve-up. Yes. And I would say even then that would be a temporary solution because the problem would come up again, wouldn't it? Because you've still got the same formula. Yes, yeah, well, the idea is that they, they, they may go to, say, a pro rata approach or something along those lines. What's also making this very interesting is that the Western Australian opposition are talking about bringing a test case in the High Court to see whether or not the current carve-up is constitutional. Now, they are relying on a judgment from 1926, um, which kind of says, well, open slather on how you allocate the money. But the Western Australians seem to think that they can bring an action to where the High court will rule that you actually can't discriminate between states. Now, of course, that boils down to what constitutes discrimination, because we've got a, a I'd say, a, a process. Now, I'd I don't want to go so far and say it's a fair and transparent process because it, it probably is and isn't depending on how you want to argue it. But there is a process that people have used for many, many years that's got wide acceptance. And it seems to me that uh, um, they want to rule that that's a, an un, that's a discriminatory process. So Western Australia is getting 38 cents in the dollar, um, whereas you could probably justify a pro rata approach or a population weighted approach in, in a more fairer way. So if that case goes forward, depending on what the high court court says, then of course, depending, and of course, depending what the high court says, the government may have no choice but to change in a very specific way, which might not be politically palatable to anybody. But of course, that's not the high court's problem. Um, so, you know, you, you have to, you, you have to watch what is politically palatable, what can be done. And of course, how much money can the government put on the table? Because I think if they change it, they do have to put money on the table. And of course, it's all taxpayers money. And of course, the demands on taxpayers money have just grown exponentially all over the place. So the government doesn't have money to put on the table which, of course, is also feeding into the nobody wants to do anything, but we all know it's not working. Um, so it's, it's all great fun to watch if, you're a, if, 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 if you like your politics as a blood sport. But um, as, a, as a sort of an economic process, it's, it's probably not, not the best outcome for the country. I'm intrigued by the suggestion of giving the states back their taxing powers. I mean, it's been, as you said, uh, it's been mooted many times before, yes. including Malcolm Fraser. Wouldn't that lead to duplication? Yes, 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 yes. But we actually live in a federal system of government. And duplication is actually in a federal system of government. Duplication is actually a feature, not a bug. So we, we, we have this view in Australia that we want to be in a federation with all our states and the state's powers and sovereignty and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, we don't want to have any duplication. Now, you, you can have one or the other. So we, we, we actually try to run ourselves as a unitary state, but with a federal structure. And 
of course, that leads to all sorts of trouble. We should actually say, if we're a federation, then we're going to have to tolerate a great deal of duplication. Um, and that's actually one of the features why people say uh, federations are a good idea, because you have policy experiments, you have duplication, you try things out, and you've got, you would have seven or eight different jurisdictions doing something instead of one jurisdiction doing something badly. So I, I, I often get very annoyed when the first thing people say is they say, oh, and we have to have a national approach to this. Well, no, we're a federation. We, we, we should have a state-based approach. So I would give the, I would give the income tax powers back to the states. Now, of course, there's different ways you can do it. You could go holers bowlers, or you could have a top-up. You know, there's various models you can play around with, but I would certainly make the states financially responsible for raising their marginal dollar of tax revenue as opposed to simply receiving it as a gift from the federal government because th- that encourages wasteful spending at the state government level. But wouldn't that create more bureaucracy in the system if you have duplication? Uh, it depends on how you manage it. Um, depends on what sort of bureaucrats you have. I mean, there's all various piggyback models that you could work on as well. Um, but already we have within every state and territory, we already have a treasury. We already have a revenue office. You know, mm. So the, these things already exist. Um, it, it, it's not clear to me that you would be creating new stuff. And this is more or less how oper- Australia operated until 1942. When the, um, the, the states did have the income tax power, it was taken off of them in order to consolidate finance to the federal government so that we could wage the Second World War and the, you know, more effectively. And the argument I always make is the taxpayers lost the Second World War. And that's, uh, um, the, that has led to a lot of the arguments and problems that we have in Australia right now over fair distribution of government spending. And I always take the view the government that spends the money should raise the money. Where we have a, there's this massive federal fiscal imbalance in Australia where I think the federal government raises about 80% of the revenue and is responsible for about 40% of the spending. And the state governments are responsible for about 60% of the spending, but they only get 20% of the money themselves. That does lead to inefficiencies and wastefulness. And of course, these political arguments over money that add a lot of heat, uh, but with very little light. And and that really is the nub of it. And the nub of it is that these political arguments that you're going to get uh, would be inevitable because of his system. Yes, 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 yes. And and they're getting more bitter um, because they're, 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 there's more at stake. And uh, political arguments over, over money are probably, or bitter political arguments over money are probably not good for the economy overall. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? I think it's got a point. COAG has always worked as a process for the feds to beat up the states. And it actually makes sense for the states to get together to work out their position beforehand and come into the negotiations with the Fed in a united on a united front. Yeah, I think that would be less chaotic anyway, wouldn't it? And it was very interesting, his views about the states taking on income tax. Yeah, because they did it before, way back what, before the Second World War, wasn't well, it? Well, the, the, the feds only got it in 1942, and that was to help Australia fight the Second World War. Well, maybe going backwards would be a good thing. That's right. Now the news. What's on the plate this week? Well, Gary, US President plans to announce a new Fed chair on Thursday, which means the new will come through on Friday uh, in Australia at Eastern Standard Time. The announcement coming the day before he departs on a trip to Hawaii and Asia will be one of the most important economic decisions Trump will make because the Fed has a role of safeguarding the US economy and is looked upon as a source of global financial stability.
volatility. Now, the market has picked up on Trump reportedly leaning towards appointing Federal Reserve Governor Jerome Powell to lead the US Central Bank, signalling continuity for Janet Yellen's monetary policy. And this morning, the Wall Street Journal has a piece saying he will be picking Powell. Speculation that Trump would pick Powell saw investors buying US stocks and bonds on Friday. Uh, Trump had been looking at a shortlist that also included the current Fed Chair Janet Yellen, Stanford University economist John Taylor, former Fed Governor Ken Walsh, and National Economic Council Director Gary Kahn. Well, if he picks Powell, that's a pretty good thing, really, because he was a close associate of Janet Yellen and probably will continue pretty close to her policies. That's right, and he also worked for George Bush as well. So, you know, it, it, he, he's got the runs on the board. Now, Gary, Australian manufacturing is falling, with October marking the final historic end of the nation's automotive assembly. The latest Australian industry group, Australian Performance of Manufacturing Index, fell 3.1 points to 51.1 in October. That said, it did mark the 13th consecutive month of growth, albeit at a slower rate than the previous six months. Uh, any score above 50 points points to expansion. And the higher Australian dollar saw exports stalling and falling into contraction at 48.7 points. And production fell 8.4 points to 48.4 points with strong falls in automotive industry-related metal products as well as in textiles and clothing. And on the plus side, there was strong growth in the food and beverages, wooden paper and non-metallic mineral subsectors. If you look at the non-factory sort of area of manufacturing like tech and whatnot, we're actually doing quite well. That's right. Now, the brakes are on the big gains in the Australian housing market after peaking in November 2016. The latest figures from CoreLogic's home value index were flat right across the country in October, and that follows a 0.2% increase in September. And the data shows price growth over the quarter slowing to 0.3%, taking the annual rate down from 8% to 6.6%. It's a bit creepy, though. I mean, if the house prices start to fall, the RBA may think about raising interest rates. That's true, too. But does seem to be a response to the tighter monetary policy coming through and tighter lending standards. Now, a draft report on the state of Australia's communications market market prepared by the corporate regulator says the MBN might have to be relieved of its responsibility to deliver a profit. The corporate regulator's report has raised the question of government help for the MBN, raising doubts whether it can recover from its customers the cost of rolling out the new network. The report from the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says the government needs to consider whether the MBN, in their words, should continue to be obliged to cover its full cost of investment through its prices. Alternatives for assistance include writing down the MBN's value, enabling it to charge lower prices, offering relief on its debt repayments, or subsidising hard-to-connect households directly through budget housing. And the report recommends further work to be done by the ACCC and the Department of Communications and to look at options like, for example, direct budget funding arrangements for non-commercial services, debt relief measures, or an asset revaluation. And the concept of what it calls greater flexibility in cost recovery objectives would have a flow-on effect on the prices charged by the MBN. The report questions a business model which sees MBN collecting an average of $43 a month from retail service providers for each home they sell into, but needing $52 just to recover costs, let alone the government's expectations of positive return on its $50 billion investment in the network. And the ACCC says government assistance might be necessary with direct budget funding arrangements for non-commercial services, debt relief measures or the asset revaluation enabling MBN to charge lower price for its services. And the ACCC report of course comes after MBN Chief Executive Bill Morrow warned that the MBN was losing money and would only make a profit if it was given government protection against competition from mobile networks. And the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull subsequently conceded there was a reasonable question mark over with taxpayers 
would ever see a return from the project. Yeah, reasonable is a big question, Mark. I don't think in its present form, it can, there's no way it's going to make money and it's unsaleable. Absolutely. Now, Qantas and Uber have come together in a partnership which will see Qantas frequent flyers earning points on Uber trips to and from eligible airports in Australia. From this Friday, November the 3rd, gold, Platinum, Platinum One and Chairman's Lounge members will earn three points per dollar spend. Silver members will earn two points and bronze members one point per dollar spend. And customers requesting an airport ride will be able to use an Uber icon appearing in the booking section of the Qantas app. And members signing up to Uber for the first time booking a ride via the Qantas app will earn two thousand bonus Qantas points on their first Uber trip anywhere in Australia. Yeah, Qantas' frequent flyer program's got, got a rocket up its bum. It's, uh, the shoppers at Woolies are getting points now too. It's, it's pretty good. Now, Westpac will continue its battle with the Australian Securities Investments Commission in the corporate regulator's rate-rigging case. It means Westpac will be out on its own, or is out on its own, after the ANZ and National Australian Bank reached a settlement with ASIC, and the NAB settlement includes a $50 million payment covering $10 million penalty and $20 million to cover the legal costs of ASIC and $20 million donation. And ANZ said the financial impact of its settlement will be reflected in the 2017 financial year results and would, in their words, be largely covered by the proof held at uh, 31st of March 2017. We'll find out when ANZ and NAB go before the Federal Court on November the 10th. Meantime, Westpac says ASIC doesn't understand the, uh, the the business and the fact that these guys act like cowboys. Well, that's what the kids do. That's what Westpac was saying. It was just trade banter in Westpac's word. Now, the brawl between Meyer and Solomon Lou's premier investments has escalated in the lead up to the retailers' strategy day for investors, which was this week. And Premier says it's considering legal action over Meyer's alleged lack of disclosure. And Meyer hit back, telling investors that Premier is putting Meyer at risk, letting Solomon Liu and his representatives in the boardroom. They said that would be enormously damaging. Temptons between Meyer and Liu have been running high since Meyer rejected Liu's request to have three directors on its boards, including two linked to Premier. And Meyer has slashed its sales growth targets. The new targets revealed that the Investor Day aims to grow sales per square metre or productivity by 10% by 2020 rather than 20%. The retailer forecasts underlying earnings per share to grow by 5% compound annual growth rate between 2017 and 20, and return on funds employed are expected to exceed 10%. That's well under the original target of 15%. At the same time, Maya released its first quarter sales for the 13 weeks to October 28, showing sales fell 2.8% and down 2.1% on a comparable store basis. And Maya also announced it plans to close or reduce the size of as many as 19 stores, targeting four in the next two years years and eight by 2025 and that's in addition to the four store closures announced this year all of which makes you wonder why solly you know the retailer's retailer wants to buy in indeed some people say that this whole amazon thing is causing a revolution in retail and if australian retailers get on the ball they'll do quite well well yeah but i would i would imagine though that solly would say that Maya was a very powerful force in its day and he's right but it hasn't done very well that's right now, Woolworths has posted a rise in its key Australian food division with comparable sales up 4.9%. It's much better than sales growth than what's experienced at Coles, which last week reported food and liquor sales growth of 0.4% on a comparable store basis, down sharply from the growth of 0.7% adjusted for Easter in the June quarter and 1.8% a year ago. In its latest market update, Woolworths reported Australian food sales were up 4.7% for the 14 weeks of the first quarter, and that was despite falling food prices. Sales at the struggling BW 
chain were up 2.5%, although Woolworths said it was still very early in Big W's turnaround. And Woolworths CEO Brand Brad Banducci said the group was conscious of the customers now looking for more convenience. But there's further work ahead, ahead of the Christmas period. In that, he is absolutely right. Now, really interesting piece of news is the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac and National Australia Bank have created a joint venture to develop the next generation of mobile payments and wallets in Australia. And that comes after the same three banks tried and failed to negotiate with Apple over Apple Pay to access the iPhone hardware necessary to build their own mobile wallets. Now, the BMAP, which is compatible across devices and banks nationwide and offers instant payments, will be a rival to Apple Pay. And AOZ is not part of the loop. It's already gone with Apple Pay. Now, Beam will work on both iOS and Android smartphones, and users won't need to be customers of CBA, Westpac, or NAB. It will have a daily funds transfer limit of $200 or $6,000 a month, a receiving limit of $10,000. It will be available to all bank customers and small businesses that hold a global scheme debit card issued by the Australian Authorised Deposit Taking Institutions. And the banks are looking to develop a digital wallet. In a sense, it's the digital equivalent of those guests credit cards you buy in the post office with an amount of money on it. It's agnostic as far as banks and uh, technology are concerned. Now, fascinating piece of news is that Wyala steelwork owner Sanjeev Gupta, who acquired the debt-laden Aryan in August, has approved a plan that will see the steelworks powered by a $700 million solar battery and pumped hydro project. And the plan, put in place by Zenergy, which Gupta's company GFG Alliance has a 50.1% stake in, was announced after Gupta chaired his first Zenergy board meeting in Adelaide. And it will include 200 megawatts of photovoltaic solar panels, a 100 megawatt battery storage facility at Port Augusta, 120 megawatt to 100-600 megawatt pumped hydro storage facility at a disused iron ore mine pit in the Middleback Ranges, and 100 megawatts of demand responses at the Arium Steelworks and other industrial sites. And Zen Energy said the plan also includes 480 megawatts of solar capacity, which it says will be installed in due course to support the expansion of industrial capacity in Wyala and industrial loads elsewhere in Australia. It will have the largest solar and power storage investment in Australia, and the giant battery will have the same capacity as Elon Musk Jamestown project. Isn't that an extraordinary development? So industry's getting in, getting on with it. And that's it for this week. Next week, we're chatting to Nathan Klipman from Ibis, uh, Ibis Worldwide. And he's going to be talking to us all about Woolworths and Coca-Cola. And in the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we look forward to talking to you next week.